Hi, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. Today we're talking to Andrea Klebeck about the art of color grading. What is it? What are the choices that go into it? Let's find out. F- finish, finish your part. Welcome to Film Formally. <laughs> Many of us, with some awareness of how films are made in the 21st century, know that after a movie is shot, it undergoes some degree of color manipulation in post. The raw data captured by modern digital cameras offers a high degree of flexibility for determining the exact look of the final image, and achieving that look is a complex and challenging process. You may or may not have already known that. Beyond that, though, people's knowledge of these processes tends to drop off pretty dramatically, with few people understanding the particular obstacles, interactions, and decisions that a colorist will be faced with. Today, to shed some light on that, as well as her own thoughts on and approach to color work, we're talking with Andrea Clayback, a supervising colorist who has worked on the color of films like Elysium, Hello Destroyer, Patterson's Wager, Mandy, and An American Pickle. Hello, Andrea. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Nice to be here. I think a good kickoff for this discussion uh, might be to talk about where the creative process starts for a colorist. So... I imagine there's not a single set answer for that, but you want to talk about how that starts off for you? Sometimes we get brought on a project towards the end, of course, of a, of a film being shot and, and in the can or edited. But I would say uh, more and more these days, uh, colorists process kind of starts you know, early on in, in pre-production even, when there's sort of the, the sentiment or the thought of this film or this project coming into play and the visuals are starting to be developed by the cinematographer and the director. And so for as colorists often now is to be brought on kind of at that stage where people are thinking about how they're going to be lighting, you know, the kinds of moods and looks and feels they're, they're going to be kind of shooting with in mind. And then uh, even at that point, you know, I have often worked alongside of cinematographers to sort of give them looks and ideas in terms of what we could do in post-production uh, and then kind of like work alongside of them throughout the process of them shooting. Say we're at the pre-production stage, not a foot of anything has been shot aside from maybe some camera tests. Uh, cinematographer and or director and or anyone else concerned comes to you with, uh, you know, Andrea, we want to develop a look. Given the wide, wide variety of films with, you know, and, and the very wide variety of looks within those films that you've developed, um, yeah. where, how do you know where to start? And I, I know that's a collective question. So how do you as a creative collective on that certain film know where yeah. to start? And what process do you undertake to, you know, whittle things down to an actual decision? Yeah, exactly. As you said, it, it really depends too on the on the team, you know, what the relationship as well is a lot of cinematographers who I've worked with before, we already have sort of like a shorthand or kind of like a language that we use to, I sometimes start with just my own ideas based on what I know. I'll sometimes get be given a script or treatment or just get a really, really wonderful um, introduction by the director or the DP um, where they just kind of give me a roundup about, you know, what is this about? What do we want to do? Here's our goals. Uh, a very recent meeting I had with a director who was, you know, excited about a project um, who shared with me 
a lookbook and you know this is what i'm thinking about this is, and this is just not even a, even a camera test being done or even a cinematographer being hired you know sharing with me i'm thinking you know this film and that painting and these ideas and and kind of getting involved from that perspective for me i, I usually jump in with you know what i hear in terms of themes and then i start to put together my own kind of mood board, I guess, kind of like a designer style where it's really like a communication of images. Here's a board. What do you think about this? You know, these ideas for that scene or, you know, you were talking about this, but it made me think of this other film or this idea. So I will just start to sort of like, you know, take from my own library of images and start to share. And sometimes that's, you know, you get interesting responses from that. Um, because, you know, they're building their own thing in terms of just the overall vision of the film and then coming at it with, you know, a little colorist perspective who's not as engaged in all the narrative and all the, you know, the production design and, and all of these sort of like deeper levels of the filmmaking process, but being kind of, you know, the macro. And that can just kind of be interesting because it, it sort of informs a little bit of the process for them. And I've seen that collaboration turn into much more development up front, you know, for example. So if something's really working or there's an idea that's really like driving with, you know, the cinematographer and the director and they're like, oh, show us more what you think. Then sometimes that leads into like actually taking a camera test. And then, you know, for us at that point, it's really kind of like sort of seeing how things land. I'm as much of like a theoretical artist as I am, you know, a realistic uh, person or a realist so you can uh, get the images and play and you kind of go okay now what actually makes sense for these images like what really makes sense here and trying to to kind of play between that sort of fantasy that you want everything to look perfectly like this other movie or this other this this visual reference and then and then it sort of evolves into its own things I'm really a big proponent of allowing a film to find itself in the look um, and that might be why a lot of my films do have a variety of different looks in them do any particular projects come to mind that involved the creation of radically different looks within the same film that really pushed kind of the limits of what was being shot? You know, there's a very <laughs> there's a very common film that I get asked about called Mandy, uh, which is uh, <laughs> probably the most like extreme, you know, in terms of the look development that I've done in my career. I would say it's it was more of an overall extreme. We were really working at really under the the director's you know vision um, and. And kind of working with, you know, as he was telling me, you know, more of this, more of this, try this, try that, you know, and I think that was really unique because it was like in his, in his mind, um, how that film was to look, but everybody was kind of trying to figure it out at the same time. And I think for me, what I do in that situation and with a lot of, a lot of directors, especially because I've, I've often been in that relationship with both the DP and the director or just the director. The director is much more of a macro visionary storytelling narrative, you know, being the primary um, focus with the director. And so I often try to throw out like really extremes, like multiple extremes at those people just to kind of get to see where they're, where they're really, their mind is. Yeah, you can calibrate, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then with that one, I would throw out extremes and none of them were extreme enough, you know? Mm -hmm. So to me, that one was like, oh, okay, you want, you want this to go further? Okay, like, let's, let's push it. And you're like, that's crazy. And then be like, oh, like more. Oh, okay. All right. That's, that's farther than I thought. Um, so that one was maybe a little bit, a little bit different from that perspective, because it was that one was like, push it as far as you possibly can go. There's another, you know, I did work on some look development for the series The Watchmen. And this was the, one of the DPs on the show, Greg Middleton. You know, there was different looks in play. Each episode would have a different look. Of course, there's a black and white episode. There was an episode where there was like a, the, 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 
the show within the show, you know, the, that was happening. So there was a look development for that specific uh, look. And then of course, sort of the, the day-to-day overarching show look of the current narrative. And that, that was interesting. And, you know, it's kind of my favorite thing to do is figure out how diverse looks kind of play together. So figuring out where you can create contrast, but also cohesion. Okay, well, how can I tie these together? Almost every film I work on, there's like a two world sort of theme, you know, it's like, Elysium, Earth, reality and and flashback that I often, for whatever reason, either find in those films in order to like guide that development or, or they're just what, you know, a lot of films have um, to work with. But to me, that's always the the challenge is like to find the contrast that doesn't push them so far that they feel like different films or different stories, you know, so that they don't feel like they're part of the same world of the storytelling. Um, I try I try and think about that a lot when I'm asked to do the same thing. I shot and then colored because uh, when I shoot films, I like to color them because I'm awful. Because <laughs> you're because you're insane. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yes. Uh, this is historical record. I am insane. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it was for a former guest, Gloria Mercer. She wanted half the film to be set in the quote unquote real world, the dystopic reality where people are stuck in their apartments uh, on video calls. Crazy. It would never happen. And then there's this virtual reality world. So we wanted to create two different looks for those worlds. And for me, the really fun part of that challenge was figuring out the commonalities and the differences between those, right? Um, we decided not to shoot on different mediums, for example, because we thought that that might feel like two different movies and also be a, a nightmare. So we shot it all on Alexa and then just simply processed the image very differently in post-production. We lit them pretty much the same way with the same kind of ideologies. In post, I could push the images so far apart that they almost resembled different films in terms of the workflow. But because they were shot similarly on set, I was able to use color to divide them really nicely, right? One was full-on, like, expired Fujifilm emulation, and the other one was just the Alexa LUT, <laughs> the Alexa Rec 709, you know, that look, and then cranked up to 10 in terms of the vibrancy. Uh, are there any points at which that you feel like, oh, we're, we're veering into this feeling like two or three different movies as opposed to different worlds and are there any kind of like guardrails you put up with yourself to avoid that or have you found you can push it extremely far and there's no the sky's the limit that's really interesting you know i often find that it, just by the nature of the way something is shot you know if you're using the same lenses you're using the same cameras etc um that's where it does keep those guardrails up for you because you typically you're going to push things. You could push things two different ways, but at least the feel of the way the image is captured, how it's lens just the same. So there's something that's sort of like in ter- terms of like a visual language is similar so that you accept it as the audience, you accept it as, okay, I'm in this world, whatever it is, show, throw me whatever you want to throw me, but I'm sort of accepting this is the lens through in which I'm viewing the world. I think you're right. As, as you start to throw in different different cameras and different mediums. Uh, that's when you can really, people get thrown out. You know, that's why documentary grading for documentary is actually quite challenging. I'd say almost more challenging than fiction or like narrative because of drama, because they're literally usually like five to six different cameras that are um, being used. And it's very obvious for the, to the, the audience and the viewer. And of course, watching a documentary, you're used to that language of that switching. So when you see it in say a drama or like a sci-fi of all of a sudden, okay, there's a new medium kind of in front of me, you immediately kind of questioning as the audience, okay, why is that a different medium? You know, what's going on? So I think that those are already those things that sort of divide us. I always find that the guardrails I start to put up are like color palettes or 
overall sort of like contrast ratio, something that is the same. I'm doing this right now on a series where it takes place in two different times in a sense, and they are quite distinct. They should be quite distinct. And it's, it's a big discussion about what is it that's the same? Is there a color palette that I can play with where it's just like same, but a little bit different? Like say we're talking like two different times. Can we pull that cyan from, you know, the, the kind of old footage and bring it into the new footage and sort of play that so that there's like the same line there. And then it also depends on if you're actually trying to like trick the audience into believing at the same time. Right. So it mm. all depends on, on what, what is going on and, and what you're trying to, you know, create emotionally or, or um, intellectually at that point. But I feel like, you know, in that overall general sense, for sure, there is a limit, you know, um, I've definitely ran that in, you know, in, in terms of, you know, explaining that before and that creating these two extremes. Sometimes I do that just to kind of find, like you said, the calibration, whereas everybody's sitting when you, if you were to put those two extremes in to play together, I've had that where we've done that. And they just, it's like completely two different storylines and, People are like, some somebody has to give. Maybe it's both of them. One side of this has to has to change because they just don't feel like they're the same film. To me, that's like that process of discovery, you know, that you have to kind of go through. I usually just use my <laughs> intuition of just like, nope, that's wrong. Go back, you know, and, and sort of try something on either side or multiple looks and, and try to get that. You mentioned earlier, um, and we've been alluding to it, that you find that the projects you work on tend to have a theme of to world. I'm sure you would agree that you've worked on enough of a diversity of projects from enough sources. Is it possible that you are approaching these projects, you're, you're kind of approaching with that paradigm and trying to find two opposing forces as you approach the story, as you approach the look uh, in order to work through your own feelings on the project? Yeah, I mean, that's a very valid point. You know, a lot of storytelling via filmmaking happens to have those themes just by nature of like what how we set these stories up, right? There's there's just the classic storyline that always has often two sides. And I, but I also think what you're saying makes sense for, you know, talking about setting up the guardrail and setting up that those sort of boundaries is that for me, when I approach something, it's easier to push something far if I have an opposing structure or opposing element. So yeah, very, very well. It's, it's possible that it's just it defined in how I intellectualize, you know, what color does do to an image and what it does do to the viewer and try to figure out what is the yin and the yang in this film and how can I use that for each side to be more defined and to create more definition overall. Oh, for sure. Like when, when I'm, whatever I'm working on uh, in any creative project, I always think in terms of like my go-to thing that I'm always looking for or seeing is arcs, right? How is this yeah. different or how is the audience different or how is the character different um, or how is the scene different but from the beginning to the end? And if there's no difference, there should be. Everyone's got their paradigms. But again, yeah. from the perspective of uh, a lay person, um, I was wondering, uh, what's a good example of that two worlds look? I mean, uh, uh, just for someone listening who doesn't in their head can doesn't immediately conceptualize, oh, here's two opposing looks and here's how they fit together in a film. Can you think of a project you worked on or even a hypothetical with those two worlds and what they look like and how they interact conceptually? I think of a very extreme one. You know, I always remember we used to talk about the film Traffic. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> right? That Because, I mean, when I started color grading, that was that film was really part of our everybody's psyche. These very distinct looks, like very yellow, 
sun drenched like crazy look you know and then cutting to something very desaturated or um blue or what have you so like really obvious changing of space changing of story changing of characters uh, and I, so I do think that we see that a lot. I, you know, I, I did a film last year called The Un-American Pickle. Um, and that one was, you know, two Seth Rogans. Uh, no, but like, you know, two time periods where the film started out in, let's say, early 1900s. It wasn't a perfectly defined time of, 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 of history, but it was roughly then. And there was a look. It was shot with that sort of academy frame. We put a grain on it. It had like a very suppressed color palette. And then there was, of course, um, a hundred year uh, pickling of a character who then woke up a hundred years later and, and found his uh, great great grandson, who was also played by Seth Rogen. And then, so then it was interesting there because we had literally two different. We had a, kind of a short film and then a feature length film, and then they were to sort of play together. You know, again, that's where I kind of came up with this. Every film I do as these worlds, you know, it's like how do you bring those together? And then, then in that one, it was much much of that idea of like playing with the palette of you know, you know, he kind of comes forward, he wears the same clothes. So it's very easy to define that like old look in the new, but how do we bring that, you know, new look a little bit into the old. And so that, that was kind of where we, we went with it in terms of palette and contrast. We talked to Chris Blauvelt about this, who shot um, all of Kelly Reichard's recent films. And he likened this development process to uh, developing a formula for you when you're developing multiple looks for a film. It's almost like you have to not only develop one formula, but multiple that complement each other. You know, when we talk about the look of films and development of them, we usually speak of them, at least pop film bros, speak of them in terms of, you know, the director and the cinematographer and then way far down everyone else, uh, which I think is, to say the least, not that accurate. Are there any sort of aspects to the films that you color grade that you can look at the film and go, ah, that, there's my trademark, that's, that, that's the Andrea look, or any kind of little <laughs> ticks or things that you you kind of value in your color grades across the board it's funny i mean i like i pride myself in somebody that doesn't necessarily have a defined one look you know obviously i don't i i like to think that i mean i've worked in a kind of a diverse group you know group of films in the last number of years so you know not really many of them are that alike um with the exception of the odd one that's you know directed by the same person but <laughs> I will say it's funny that you said that because I remember many, many years ago um, having the chance to work on, a, you know, a very big budget film from a, in a very behind the scenes kind of way. So it wasn't um, I wasn't the main colorist on it. You know, I was working on this film primarily with a VFX team. Uh, this whole scene was a day for night scene, but what they had was not. It was obviously lit day, but it was going to look you know there were there were these animals running around because i knew that i wasn't going to get a credit on that film i did put like little nuggets for things to like know that i you know that i did that knew that i did it and it may not be just my thing but i do have a very standard kind of like color separation thing that i do like to like bring into almost every film that i work with i like to see defined colors whether we're suppressing the palette down to even two <laughs> you know we're talking about mandy for example where there might be like magenta and pink um but that would be very rare like those are specific scenes where you'd you'd like impart this like extreme lighting and you know you're playing with that but when i'm kind of overall looking at a film and trying to kind of give it that like final touch usually what i'm doing is like separating the color just a little bit to kind of create that definition to enhance like the cinematography and so I'm often known for the sort of like <laughs> um, the balance, like the color balance that that pure white or these sort of like balanced 
you know, white. So, you know, looking at a film like Elysium that I did many years ago, I remember a number of colorists coming to me and saying, wow, that film was like so tight. Like the <laughs> whites were so white. And I thought that was really funny, but it is something very much that I like find pride in that I, I like to be able to always give the audience like a little reference in the image so that it doesn't look like it's, you know, unless it's supposed to look like fully, fully filtered. Um, I always like to have that like little bit of separation so that the audience can like feel the sort of reality and like the cinema in it and and have like a little point of like okay stable okay there that's a gray spot i understand where i am in this in this space and it just something that makes me maybe feel comfortable <laughs> so that's why i put it in but i mean i always think that images look really you know thinking about some of my favorite paintings like i love dutch realist paintings i love how the daylight look is transported through paint in Dutch painting. So I enjoy putting those, that like white point in films when I work. I just love seeing it. I love having that. Even if it's just like a glint or, you know, the little like little peel of something that's in the space that you can have like as a reference point to kind of separate all the colors. I particularly like enjoy that. And, but again, not every film allow like needs that or requires that it's just something that i i think if you're going to ask me my signature like that's what i think i have the gift to like find the spot where i can like just add a little push of something that you know brings out some more color and like defines you know a character or defines a lighting you know arrangement in a scene so i'm interested if if you're up for it to get in more into the specifics of this um because uh, for someone who doesn't know about color this sort of stuff uh, is going to be i think fascinating of so when you talk about color separation you're talking about just doing things that make it easier to distinguish between the different colors in the palette, I, I, if mm -hmm. I'm understanding you correctly. And so, for example, setting a, uh, a clear white point um, within the scene, like a, just a particular part, I assume you mean, of the shots that are the highest highlight in the scene and therefore are going to be pure white. I'd like to hear more about that. You know, when you're first starting to play around with color cinematographers and they've shot something, they were standing in the space. The colors don't often have the benefit of having stood in a space and having you know, um, their eyes adjust to that scene and I recognize like the depth and, you know, where the lighting source is coming from and et cetera. So, you know, we're always looking at the image kind of going like, oh, I think this looks cool. So like, we're kind of playing around with it, not knowing what it really looked like. You know, I always make the joke, like I'll happy, happily go to France to really absorb what that lighting is, but it, which is interesting because having lived in, in Vancouver for so many years and, and trying to take films and making them look like, you know, California, which, right. you know, films that were shot in Vancouver <laughs> that's supposed to look like they were, take, took place in LA or, you know, some cases, New York or whatever, a much more Southern light. I'm now living, you know, living in the opposite and seeing a lot, like that is, a, it's a very real thing wherever you are on earth, you know? Uh, so as you're, you're kind of playing with the, with the colors, you know, as a colorist, you're often just kind of like throwing weird colors into areas where they don't necessarily belong just because it's like, you don't know what it looks like. You know, you, you weren't standing there. And so um, it, that process for me or that sort of discipline came out of working with cinematographers who would say like, it looks filtered. You know, they, they to me, they, they would kind of reference like having put a filter on a light so that every, like from the white to the dark, every aspect of the image was tinted with something with a color and that's not what they wanted you know they wanted it to you know no i shot this with the daylit like a daylit bulb over here or this was shot outside or whatever so they always wanted to have those reference points and i think 
that desire comes from that place of just that natural human need to have, to have, you know, these little, these kind of guardrails or, you know, I love that term. I think Devin, you said that earlier, like I've just kind of understanding a space a little bit more in terms of just like visually or emotionally, like, how do I feel if an image, this might get a little bit crazy. If an image gets very like filtered, it's very like orange or it's very, you know, thinking about like something like Blade Runner, for example, recently, um, I'm just thinking of like a big films that have like big casts of color. Oh yeah. That one shot from Blade Runner is the film that I get the most requests to match or especially as a teacher, <laughs> students ask me, how can I exactly do this? It's, you know, it's easy. You just have to hire Roger Deakins. It's really no big deal. Um, no. Yeah. So but uh, the reality is, is that like with those, those are, you know, specific looks that obviously people see, you, you can think of, you see on film and you can remember, but they create such a deep emotion, right? Like you don't, there's, they're one big wash of a very saturated color. It's, I think that is a reason why Mandy, for a lot of people, that's why it has a very, I think almost like a following or emotional impact because it has a lot of these scenes where there is so much color, you know, thrown at you visually that you feel so much from that, right? But not, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a requirement for every scene in your film to have mm -hmm. these like washes of color. And I think having a, just like a, you know, an emotional reference of like a white point, it's actually like a stabilizing, mm -hmm. we call it color balancing, but it's like actually like a balancing emotionally as well. In, in, in my, like how, when I'm watching a film, it's almost just like, okay, we're in like normal world now. Okay, cool. I can be a little bit more relaxed. Like I'm not going to expect anything super crazy in the next right. few minutes. There's something about that. That's just an emotional thing, I think, you know, and I think that's why I'm always like looking to put it in because I don't necessarily, I want to be able to use that lack of balance later to push more emotion into the, the scene or whatever's happening. Do you know what I mean? So it's oh. sort of like you use it almost like as a, okay, here's like neutral, here's balance. Okay, it's going to get crazy later, you know, and so I want you to feel what it feels like to be normal. So I'm going to put some white, you know, make sure the white points are all good here. And then we'll, we'll kind of, you know, go up and down from there, um, if that makes sense. I find that also applies to um, contrast and quote-unquote brightness. I find when people are starting out and they're trying to make an image look dark, they just underexpose it. You know, they light it from the front and then they, you know, close down their iris to f8, and then they're like, eh, "That's dark, right?" And it's it's not actually dark. And what I usually tell people is, have a bright point in your image, have something that the audience can go, "This is brightness," and then everything else around that yeah. can be darker. And so it applies to both color and uh, quote-unquote exposure too, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Like there's a film that I, I did called Hello Destroyer. And it's a, you know, a film that was often discussed uh, in the realm of look for being quite dark, like for kind of sitting in a lower end. And that's exactly, you know, how we set that was because we did it. There was a very key scene early on in the film, which was in an ice rink. You know, like we were not going to make that dark. Like out of everything in the film, there was no, you can't even make that dark and it looked good. So that was sort of our reference point of like, this was like the life before all of this other stuff happened and or at the point of which this, this, this event happens that now sets the tone for the rest of the film. But it was almost like it, it sets you with some, some kind of a frame of reference and then you can take it from there. And it allows the audience to really see that change or progression over time as well. Like it's just much more, it might still be, be subconscious. It's just something that you feel, obviously, but it's hard to feel it if you just start there. Like you said, you know, if you start in a very contrasty way, you don't really, 
necessarily feel a change as much as you do because you're already like out of sorts. Mm -hmm. So giving the audience like almost like a normal or like a neutral feel allows that contrast or whatever your color or what have you to kind of start playing a role in terms of like that narrative or that like experience, right? I have a funny story about um, you might find you might find funny about Hello Destroyer actually. Um, a friend of mine is a programmer at a film festival, a small one. They programmed Hello Destroyer, um, and I get this phone call like two hours before uh, it's supposed to start, and they said we tested Hello Destroyer and we can't tell if the projector is wrong or if if the image is is compl- if the file they sent was completely wrong. So I go over there. <laughs> And what actually had happened was that their projector was calibrated a little too dark. So sure. it was crushing the blacks, right? It was clipping black at around really 10% IRE, right? It's it's like, right. and for the, I just, that was a lot of jargon. 10% IRE means like 10% above black on like a white to black scale for those listeners. And so 100% is white, 0% is black. It gets more complicated than that, but that's my over. It means a bunch of stuff that should just be pretty dark is out and out black. It's a short. <laughs> Exactly. It's all black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why Hello Destroyer triggered this was that Hello Destroyer has, I think, a slightly a darker than average IRE level in terms of the peak. It tends to exist, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere, usually somewhere between like zero and 60-ish. If not lower. Yeah, if not lower. But yes. Yeah. And most films tend to use the whole gamut. Like the vast majority of content is like zero to 100. It's using the whole thing. So... And again, more guardrails, right? Like when I'm coloring, I'll tend to go from like three to 97 to account for screens and stuff um, if I'm doing for home release or streaming or whatever. But Hello Destroyer was like, I watched it and it's like, yeah, half the image was just pure black and it was just these blobs floating around the screen um, because right. the projector was just that 10% too dark. Right. So there are definitely risks, I guess, to grading in an unusual way. Uh, absolutely. And that one, it's sort of a unique one. And like you said, I've had a lot of comments about that one uh, throughout the last number of years. So people just loved it. They loved that there was like, it was so on the edge. And so, you know, there was things they couldn't see. Of course, then we get into streaming and we don't have as many issues. Of course, people are going to show, they're going to have their TV set all different ways. So there's no way you can control that. But the intent is still there. You know, really, when you talk about those things and you take those risks, you have to think about that. Like, is that risk worth it? You know, not every time we take that risk and it's worthwhile. I think in this particular case, it was worthwhile for the content, for the for the story and the narrative and for the filmmakers and how they wanted that film to be seen and to be like not seen, you know. And I think that uh, was pl- that was a very important thematic aspect of that film for it to feel almost hidden from you, almost too dark to really have been able to fully absorb it. So I think... You always have to, you know, think about those risks. I think as a colorist, you know, you have all of that uh, vocabulary in your mind, in your head. And like, as, as Devin just sort of like said the words IRE, I mean, I was kind of in my head like, Haha, I've never said that out loud. But, um, you know, I know <laughs> what it means. And you try to sort of think about, you know, how now do you translate that that information, you know, into these decisions? Because you don't want to necessarily be too, too restricted by the unknown Right. You know, I don't know what theater these are going to be playing in. I don't know what people's TV settings are going to be. So how far do we know how to push? We have a certain standard that we have to set to like, what do we want to see? What do we not want to see? What do we never want to see? That's always a conversation too, that comes up when we make things dark, because it's like, sometimes you'll, it'll be the opposite. You'll have a projector that will be jacked up and, or shown in the wrong color space. And then you see all this detail that, that you don't want people to see. So, it, you know, there's a lot of these conversations that we have 
I'm always excited by those that like push the limits because it's like, well, if it, you know, thinking about like that episode of Game of Thrones that I did not uh, have the pleasure to work on, but like was a, was everybody just like freaks out about this episode of Game of Thrones. And like, it was like, you were like, I think, I think um, the DP actually had like threats. Like it was so bad. Really? And I thought, well, oh. yeah, oh yeah. Like he, I think, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty rough. Like just the whole experience, I think for, for them. But I also think that, I don't know. I don't know anything about their actual personal experience. I shouldn't talk about it, but I just, you know, in the media seeing, seeing these like stories about game of Thrones and thinking about the darkness. And I remember thinking like, Oh my God, people are like talking about like my job. Like this is like, now it's like in the, in the, in the, in the public eye of like, Ooh, how dark they made it. So now I can use game of Thrones as a reference. Like, you know how in that episode, everybody thought, talked, it was too dark. Well, I watched it on this TV and it looked amazing, but then I watched it on, you know, my TCL and it looked awful. And, and, I, and now I understand, you know, because there was a like, compression artifacts and, you know, all the streamer and all of these things that are going to factor in. And it's good because it allows, no, it's not good for, you know, for them, of course, what happened there. But for me, I thought it was like really an interesting thing to now have like, okay, here's an exact example of what could happen. Yeah, it's like people talking about uh, not being able to hear the dialogue in Christopher Nolan movies (laughs) and saying the sound design was so bad. And then you just go, oh, my gosh, they're talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But I do have an opinion about that. There was, I don't know if you have this experience totally off topic i remember seeing interstellar and being like okay this is just like a little too much for me like i don't i I understand but there's like a point where i I don't need to like experience this that much you know so (laughs) i don't know you know and i agree and and the thing is it goes similarly for color like for a hello destroyer or whatever i haven't had threats or anything about that over that movie because it wasn't as big Uh, i hope not no but there you know there's been people who you know they express their frustration over content like that where they're like well i didn't consider sure. anything you know and it's like well that inspired an emotional response and i think that's kind of in the end ultimately what a film like that is meant to do so if whether you liked it or not i'm sorry but um but it, it is it is something that's it's super intriguing when you see like whoa people are actually feeling something from this uh in a real way that's either negative or positive you know with with sound or with visual it's it's pretty cool yeah, and you know, if you inspire just one person to turn off <laughs> Auto Bright or whatever on their TV, then you know it was all worth it. <laughs> exactly. Turn off the sports setting or whatever. Action <laughs> <Yeah>. mode. <laughs> Please don't use sports. Well, so j- just to give my two cents on the Nolan thing, um, I lived <laughs> I lived in my apartment with my wife for five years. We just moved out actually a month ago, but. We had one noise complaint in our entire history of the apartment in five years, and it was for Tenet. I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> Interstellar was my breaking point, too. I actually, yeah, it was too, it was too much for me. So while we're talking about IRE level arcana, <laughs> uh, there's one kind of, I think, area that so many DPs I talk to, including myself, I'm very self-contradictory, have wildly different opinions on, and that's exposure ideology which is one of my favorite topics, but no one else agrees. And I'm just wondering as a colorist, because so many you work with so many different DPs on this. So for, for me personally, depending on the project, so I'll light a certain way on the film set, right? And then I will pull up my light meter, expose for that, and then try and probably bump my exposure up by even like two stops uh, until I start, you know, until clipping starts to happen. And then maybe I'll shoot depending on how safe I want to play the scene, right? If it's a dark scene with a lot of shadows, I might 
bump it up more to preserve those shadows. Um, if it's a daylight scene, I'll probably expose straight down the middle. And depending on who I talk to, I'm either told that's the way I should be doing it or that's crazy, Devin, get off my lawn. I have, you know, it's interesting because I work with actually a lot of DPs that have a very, very different approach to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, you know, I've had films shot on Aria Alexa that were, that were rated at 3,200 the whole, the whole um, film oh, uh, that produced a certain result. I mean, and, it, and, and we're not shooting anything crazy. We're not shooting with that for any reason. It's just, that's, that is the style. And I think, you know, again, it's similar to, you know, what kind of feel that gives you. There's also now with this whole HDR primary deliverable as being like, instead of us moving everything into, you know, releasing on in theatrical, you know, a lot of it's now releasing in HDR on all the streaming platforms first. And so, you know, that's become a very big factor in terms of like how, you know, how DPs change and adjust in terms of their lighting ratios and how they expose even. So, you know, I've had on, on that front, I've had like lights painted, turned down, like so that we get the, you know, we're con- containing and we're exposing. Uh, but then, you know, we're, we're knocking down lighting or like practical lighting in inside the scene to be able to like make sure that none of those things are going to get like stretched too far away in the overall look. I would say that from a colorist perspective, you know, we have such a range in terms of, especially in something like, a, a, you know, an Aerie or, or a RED camera or, you know, even Sony Venice, like the range that we can use in log shooting is so wide that you can, there's a lot of forgiveness, I think, in color grading that allows you to shoot at something like 3200 or like a little bit above that or, or lower sort of an overexpose or an underexpose and still kind of be able to, to work with it either way. It kind of just depends on the overall look. If you want the texture, you might rate higher because you are going to get the sensor is going to become more sensitive. So it's going to kind of like create a little bit more texture for you. It will at some point limit the range that you have, mm-hmm. of course, depending on the lighting. But I find that, you know, just the simple fact of these cameras and the sensors that like what they can shoot, they're just like, they give you so much that you really can play with it and like, you know, as a DP decide what you want to do based on like what the texture is that you want. You know, you can kind of put it in or you can say, look, we'll put it in later, but we want it to be really sharp and we want it to be more defined and we want it to feel brighter and then we can bring it down. Uh, I mean, I love the idea. You can always bring it down, but you can't always bring it up. There's mm-hmm. not as much detail that comes out of the shadows if it's not been captured, right? That is sort of like the ob- obvious rule. So if you're concerned about that, then that would be something I would lean a- away from underexposing. But I've also had worked on dark, uh, you know, uh, horror films, which were intentionally underexposed. And that's kind of like the way it is. Like, again, for this, for the reason of like, we don't ever want to see what's there so like let's not let the detail even be present in the negative per se i find like with certain cameras when you underexpose there's certain cameras that take a little bit better than others so i'm usually if that's ever a topic that comes up i'm like just be aware there's going to be a bit more texture and that meaning there might be some more like when i say texture it's noise which can be perceived sort of like grain and i think in with a area you can get away with that a little bit more than you might per se in other cameras because they've worked pretty hard at that texture i don't know i mean that was a very long-winded answer i don't know there there definitely isn't one way to think about it so i don't necessarily i think that's why you're getting a difference of opinion 
because you, you, you know, you'll, you'll get DPs that are like, no, I always do it like this is, and I do this every time. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like now we're seeing a lot more just because of like DPs that have shot film and now they've shot with digital and they're like, oh, I can push this in a much different way. They're starting to change like how they're shooting. And again, with HDR, they're changing the kind of lighting um, a little bit to sort of just like account for all these things. I think that's probably the main reason why you'd get like distinct answers because it really isn't, you know, ultimately one way to do it. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of very technical cinematographers, but I think a lot of the time it's like, I think that's, this is what I want to do for the whole thing because of this, you know, and that there's like a much more creative reason for that um, than necessarily. I find that I get a lot I'm much more involved in like the lens discussion. What aspects of that? I'm really curious. When you think about a lens, a lens is like defining a look, you know, it defines that sort of depth and that feel and, and it brings certain colors forward and, and drops other ones back. That's part of my the camera testing. And so I usually just am like, we're talking about it and saying like, oh, with this one, you know, there's going to be more flare so we can bring in this blue. It's going to be kind of interesting. And you talk a lot about like, what can we use to complement that, um, that let look and feel. And then that's where you end up, you know, because you end up seeing either like the, the ground glass, you know, from a lens or you see like the texture a lens gives, that will initiate that conversation more about the exposure and what's working and what isn't. Because when the mm -hmm. sensor starts to introduce its own type of texture and those two and you can't really see the lens texture anymore then you start to kind of discuss like okay maybe that might be one way to go interesting the kind of um conceptions and misconceptions a lot of people have about what you can introduce in post and what you can't um like lenses are something that i often find myself having a conversation with directors especially about like well this lens is quote-unquote warmer but that's something that we can pretty easily either compensate for or introduce in post if we use this lens um, versus, okay, so this lens has a flare that is extremely difficult to replicate in post. Do you find yourself having to have those conversations where it's like, this is something we can do in post, this isn't, and are there any maybe common things that people don't think they can do in post that you can, or vice versa? I mean, this can apply to lenses or lighting or anything. I often have to have the lighting conversation of, you know, where it's someone won't realize that you can change the lighting ratio a bit in post, but you can't move a light. No, for sure. And that's what I was going to say is like, I'm always like really a fan of like the production design and the, and the sort of lens choice being kind of like, that's where you put a lot of your money because you, that's something you can't really like necessarily bring in uh, and color grading is like uh, the, that right paint color and you know yeah yeah you can tweak it but if it's like not you know that the texture of the curtains isn't like the right texture it's like I'm not going to do anything to make that look old or to make you know it's it's not going to be easy for me to get in there and I think there is sometimes misconception with color and visual effects like what you can do as a colorist versus what is really like defined as a visual effect and those lines do blur. Like we do a lot of things in, in color that used to be v VFX. A lot of work that's done like skin tone and beauty mm -hmm. work or like removing tattoos or, you know, um, or, you know, even just like wire removal, things that are like, or paint outs of certain things that like we can just do those things now, which we didn't used to do as easily, but still trying to like leaning more into like the color. I've, I've composited lens flares into films where they've, DP has like a set of flares and then, you know, we bring those in they're like basically like plates of flares, you know, you get like, like a VFX sort of reel would have like with them, um, assets like a fire or explosions similarly like you have we have those libraries of flares which we can like play and, and move with in the image that's even something that we can do in grading because you kind of can composite 
on the fly with with a color and, and then move it around and play with it that way. Sometimes with the flares, I say, just since that's been like such a big hot topic in the last few years since J.J. Abrams really re- re- enlivened that. Um, oh, is, is, he, we, is um, he who we should blame? Oh, I feel yeah. like Star, Star Trek, Trek yeah. Um, yeah. really, really like sold it to everybody, <laughs> um, which I I'm, I'm a fan. I, I love that movie so much because I'm a big uh, Star Trek fan due to my brother being a huge Star Trek fan. Um, and I, I was like, that was great. But then when we, it was like halfway through the movie, I was like, whoa, there's like so much going on here. And then then uh, after that, we started seeing and I think that like it's really interesting because it, it creates such a feeling, you know, obviously. And but I think that like shooting with those sometimes it's difficult because to get it right and so then you can't take them out right and sometimes they don't totally work and so then or they're the the timing isn't great and then the editor i'm sure will could have a lot to say about these flares but like i've experienced it from the editor they end up cutting them out because i just can't work with them in the edit you know it doesn't it's not doesn't make any sense like why would we see a flare here or what have you so screw with cutting on motion so much sometimes (laughs) yeah right yeah you know i like lens choice Places, like the top of the line, like let's do the lenses. That's really going to give the feel that you want. That's going to be quite specific. Make sure that that's like you take care of that because creating a lens effect, you know, they do it in VFX a lot, but it can become a whole visual effects job and it's just never quite right. Um, there's nothing like the, you know, what it actually looks like to shoot through a lens, a specific mm-hmm. kind of lens as well, especially those like vintage primes like you know there's such such a feel with those that like a lot of the time when you'll see references it'll be like oh that's what that is you know so it's the lens that you want but i also agree with you that like don't you can't move a light as well you can you can adjust like how dark or bright like you said with the ratios but not necessarily like the quality of that Mm -hmm. light Mm-hmm. or tweak you know i've done that thing where it's like oh they put a different scarf on this person like we can tweak that you know that's okay yeah. um or like the, the costume got wrecked so they have to like change something we're gonna like match it those things are okay to like work on but like if it's an overall feel and the quality of like the design and the set pieces and all of that stuff that's all the stuff that to me is like really important like get that stuff right because we can't I mean, you can VFX some of that, but like, it's going to, you don't want to waste your money on that. You want to spend your money on, you know, like just continuously layering in, you know, those kind of meaningful narrative things, like having more time to cut and having more time for VFX to get that thing to look exactly right and having more time in color to really decide, is this the right feeling for the scene, you know, or should it be like darker or should it be greener or whatever versus like, fixing stuff you know i always like the idea of just saying like we don't want to spend all of our time fixing because then there's like not really any time left to be creative yeah i think a very good rule of thumb in film is that the place where you get the most value for money more often than anything not is um is just time when everyone goes to film school it's always drilled into your head don't don't fix it in post do it right on set and one yeah. thing i like to say is i like to finish it in post where i i like to shoot with a certain intentionality knowing that we can get there in post better than if we just did it on set. It's like if we have an entire scene that's supposed to be bathed in red, bright red, but the lighting is monochrome, you can just light it with tungsten lights or daylight lights and then color grade it red in post. However, if you want like red foreground, blue background, it's going to, some roto budget you're going to have to have in post. Um, yeah. uh, so just do it on set. So, you know, it's very situational, I guess. 
For sure, for sure. I mean, like looking at what they're, what the intent is, and then trying to figure out what what's worth spending the time. I always think about like giving cinematographers as much of the toolkit as possible, like they understand like what they can do. Because I always think of color really being as that extension of cinematography, and it's an extension of directing and storytelling. But it's like really the cinematographers like what they couldn't achieve or what they didn't have time for. And so when you think about when you're going to try to cut time, you're always pressed for time. You know, as a DP on set, it's like knowing what you can do later is probably the most helpful and not necessarily being like just trusting you can do like we can do all of that because i've definitely had that a lot of the times where it's like we thought we could do this but we you know we couldn't or testing it up luckily having some films where we've tested out like say can we do a digital makeup thing can we make a single character a different skin tone uh and being like a like an alien type skin tone can we take that person make them like green through the whole film uh with color grading no you cannot do that <laughs> <By the way. laughs> you know just no know, just knowing like just some even some things like you said like you might be able to as long as you create like we were talking about color separation earlier sometimes it's like if you know you might want to have an overall wash of the scene you might still kind of slide it with a little bit more some neutral points because then that'll give you the choice to move the color in many different directions but if you lock yourself into sort of one color then the channels just don't move the same way later. So you might not be able to get that perfect orange or that perfect red. I've had that actually with quite a few films where they're like, they're trying to get this orange and you can never get it because it was like technically clipped in the way it was shot. Mm, You'll get that with like, with like headlights or, or I should say taillights on cars. Like you've ever seen that in films where they're like, they're pretty much this one color. It's because they don't, because those colors like clip out in the, on the sensor. So they literally don't, have any range you just move them to one this color or that color but they don't like move around like everything else and i think that's like the major thing is like if you want an extreme look think about actually thinking about what you can do that in post-production because if you shoot it so extreme that you're limiting yourself to only one or two colors or like the two channels and like one of them's not even present you may you need to do a test to make sure you can get that exact color and everybody's on board with it really before you do that because otherwise you might not at the same time i've definitely worked with dps who do not allow for those changes because they're like this is how it's supposed to look and it's not going to be it's not going to move around and so you don't there's not much you can do in post-production with with stuff like that and they're like yes because i shot it like that you know and so it, it, that, that used to be really common year, a few years ago when we first were going from film to digital where DPs was like, nope, shot it like that. That's how it is. And that's what it's going to look like. Thank you. I don't you know because they didn't want anybody to change it. But I think now it's like it's freeing up a little bit more and realizing what they can do, you know, in, in post. So I also think that there's this kind of idea of the raw look. You know, like, oh, it was shot this way when, you know, I often find myself having to clarify. I feel like I'm complaining about people a lot today. Anyways, <laughs> I find that um, there's a slight miscommunication where people see the image they get out of the camera as, oh, that's the raw image that the natural way the camera sees the world and not, no, no, this is a log curve designed to not to be viewed per se, but to maximize detail retention. And that there really is the idea of the way the camera recorded it is kind of up for grabs depending on settings and <laughs> it's the way that the world worked for a while because you get these log images and then all the remember all the commercials for like two or three years were all these oh, like yeah. super flat <laughs> you know because because you would get them on set and the DIT would like oh this looks cool and they were like oh it looks really cool and then they would just grade it up from there and and that's a really interesting point to talk about in terms of like if that's your starting point then your your final point is going to be actually much less contrasty because mm-hmm. you you think you're making a big change but you're actually going from something 
I always used to say to people like that image is not meant to be seen as a DP. You look at it because you want to see that your range is captured and where it exists. Like it helps you provide yourself context in terms of like where that image is sitting. And, but you have to think about it. Like we are never going to hold up a negative and look at it and be like, Oh yeah, I like mm. that look like that's never would happen. And, but because we can do that with the raw image, it's like kind of like deceiving. Like even the way we're looking at it is sort of wrong, right? Like if really, you were to view it, not. it'd be a bunch of ones and zeros, you know. It doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean that's <laughs> the next level. But like the idea there is like it's not really. It's still being the log image is not really like a viewable thing. Oh, it's all good. And don't get me started on like flat film scans. Um, if I had a nickel for every <laughs> film festival film I've seen, that was just like the flat scan, and I'm like, oh. Yeah. Um, so so um, I kind of have two. Lines of thought here that are semi-related, but not quite. One is about image capture. When I was younger, and I think less when I, when I was less knowledgeable of this one thing, I kind of saw each camera as almost like a like a, a type of paint, right? Like the the Alexa has an Alexa look, a Red has a Red look. And these days, I kind of see them all as just image gathering tools to steal a quote from Steve Yedlin, trying to, you know, gather the best data I can from the film set that I've lit in a certain way that is not intended to maximize that data. I've lit it for aesthetics, but the sensor part, the data coming into the sensor is to maximize the data. And then in post, I try and bring it to a place that fully realizes my intent on the set. Celluloid to me is still kind of a slight tweak on that because it really is like when you shoot on a certain film stock, you are kind of baking in a certain look. And then there's that added complication of film emulation, something that I think is, I have thoughts on that, something that I think is really interesting is the idea that you can essentially gather really good data with a digital camera and then use that to better emulate a type of film stock. Um, I'm not quite sure how much you've color graded on film versus digital in the past few years, but what sort of differences do you find between something that's shot on film, obviously intended to look like film, and something shot digitally intended to then you know, pretend to be film, which is probably the single most popular way that it, digital images are captured for at least art cinema now is everyone wants it to look like film. Well, I think that, you know, there has been a lot more of like reality driven um, decisions <laughs> on that <laughs> film uh, strategy in the last few years. Just people be seeing those images and being like, well, that doesn't look like film at all, you know, and, and then also having, you know, people continue to shoot you know, obviously these big movies on film you know, that we keep, we kind of get to keep seeing. It hasn't totally left our psyche in terms of what film looks like, although it sort of has like definitely taken a step back. And there has been a lot of like advances in, you know, cameras so that they do kind of emulate a certain quality of light or a certain quality of image that we spend a lot of time, you know, or at least in the, the, the years when digital became kind of a big thing, red camera, Ari Alexa, and everybody was like, okay, cool, but like make it look like film. And especially with the red camera, I felt like that was a very big push for red mm. was to try to get it to look more like film because it had all these sort of like confusing kind of colors and sort of things for filmmakers that are like, but it doesn't quite do that. Whereas Ari kind of like they had a different approach. And I think a lot of filmmakers who adopted the Ari just because it, it was just felt more, even though it was different, just felt more natural like of a progression in, in terms of the digital realm mm -hmm. um and there's all kinds of talk about that i'm not a cinematographer so i don't want to you know get into that um no, but, but we, we need more colorists opining on cinematographers there's too much of the other way uh, around <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> um but i think that like you know just from the you know from the final finishing perspective we know i i'm i'm 
I love grain. I love text. I was talking about it for such a long period of time earlier. Like I love, you know, texture and love the idea of that feeling of motion. And we, you know, we use it for all kinds of things. Sometimes I use it to get rid of a digital feel. Like if there's banding in an image or there's some kind of like certain kind of like gradient content that just creates something that looks very digital, you know, adding the texture to sort of like break things up. And it's very subtle. I was for a number of years, a very big fan of just having a very, very light texture, even imperceivable and people would always be like, well, why bother? You can't really see it on off. It's like, well, it's something that's going on in the field. It's almost like when you're, when you used to watch films, you know, projected, you know, there was always like a flicker and like, I wasn't ever into digitally recreating a flicker, but there was something to that, that persistence of vision, you know, feeling that you got watching a film in the dark, your eyes opened up in a different way that they didn't have to when we started watching things with a digital projector, you know, you're, you're kind of like, oh, okay. So the light is consistent, you know, whereas we used to watch film, our eyes are, we would literally become more sensitive to the things we were like the room we were sitting in simply because we were sitting in the dark for half the time. And so I think it's, like I said, at reality driven, we've sort of come a long way in realizing that it's we now a very different experience sitting in a digital cinema, watching a film and like what putting texture on a film does, you know, in that experience is very different from what it the texture that generated the image so i feel like a lot of a lot of cinematographers and a lot of directors are really aware now of like that feeling that that film was just put on top and i think that's where you get you know a lot of new tool sets like live grain and things like that which are coming out of this theory because we want it to interact more with the image we want it to get to get that feeling we want that to feel like it's literally that what grading is coming from is coming from like a chemical reaction and like a sensitivity to light or not. Right. And that's just not evident when you just put a layer of, of grain on. So my strategy with grain has always been like, you either like make it very obvious. So it's like just in your face, like, you know, uh, some extreme films where you put them, it's in there because that's like the look that you want. You want it to look gritty and great, whatever it is, because that's part of this feel you want it to feel very different or it's very subtle and like it's, it's there to sort of just like have a persistent, consistent feel. Um, and, and it's rare for me to work on a film where we don't have any grain or something involved just because I feel like it's like everybody's always looking for just something that's going to break up the image and that sort of smooth digital quality that people are still quite sensitive to when they, when they see their, especially when they see it on the big screen. I think if you're looking at a small screen, you're not as like, or it becomes more obvious. So you, your grain choices are much more subtle. Then you look at it on the big screen, you can handle a lot more texture on the big screen. Um, it's just a different experience. So I think, I think the reason it's changing now is because we're not watching as much on the big screen anymore. Even before the pandemic, we weren't doing that experience wasn't as like prevalent as it was even like five or 10 years ago. So I think that that's, that might be why it's changing. At least the films that I've been working on, it's been very rare for anybody to just be like throw grain on it. Like it's like a whole session or a whole multiple days of just like, mm, is that the right, is it the right feel? Like, you know, and we do it a lot where we kind of, you know, bake it into the process of like, we'll grade, then we'll add the grain and then we'll grade with the grain and see how it feels. And like, rather than just doing it all at the end or, or whatever, it's very theoretical discussion. And then it's also just completely like about feel, like you just look at it and it's, if it's right or if it's wrong. And it's, so it's sort of like, a, it's a little bit of pressure, I think, you know, on, on the post side to kind of get that right, I think. But when you, when you work on grading films that are shot on film, 
they also are compromised because they're not necessarily like, that's just a different medium that wasn't meant to be pushed and pulled and shaped and drawn and keyed and all that stuff. So it, the, those images, even though they're scanned and in a digital space, they, they just don't react the same way, you know, to what we're used to doing with digitally acquired imagery. So I think it's just like processes a little bit different. Like you kind of grade a little bit different when you're working on film because it's like, so much of the feel is just in the image already. And why are we manipulating the image? Like, what are we trying to do? I love that moment in that film process where it was like, what are we doing with the color grade? And why are we doing this? And should we be doing this? And like, what does it mean? And, and I think that you get a lot more of that with film people who have chosen to shoot film because they've just had to like bake a lot of their decisions into the film already, but especially by the time it gets to post. So you're kind of like, there's just a lot more at play there. Um, but I think you're right that like aesthetically, you know, should people be adding grain to digital images? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, but I do, I do find personally that like, it does add a layer of something that we, it's the, it's the, it's the je ne sais quoi. It's the, something that gives you a different feeling. And it's like, as long as you do it right, you know, when then that's the question, like, what's right <laughs> it's interesting your your thoughts on kind of the the film look being kind of a post-production process too got me thinking about um the evolution of di's where in mm -hmm. the you know directly post oh brother where art thou um if you go back and watch some of those early-ish 1080p 2k di's and such uh, i rewatched lord of the rings recently that movie is power window city holy moly it's just shameless and i kind of love it hey devin yeah what's a di Oh, digital intermediate. <laughs> I refer everyone to episode one of our pocket. No, um, digital intermediate means they scan 35 millimeter film, becomes a digital file. So many of those early films felt like they were poking at the edges of what was possible with digital color grading. Then it all kind of settled. And I feel like the same thing is happening with digital image capture, where in the early days of the red and the Alexa, like, like I just remember seeing the social network and I still kind of miss, I miss filmmakers going for that aesthetic of just, like what they did was they shot it in the red one and then they denoised the heck out of it. It's just, everyone looks like plasticine. I think it's, I love it. I think it's beautiful. I, but now it feels like we're kind of heading towards this very like, what's the word, um, dignified. And, and I mean that pejoratively. A singularity of everything looking like it was shot on Kodak film from the 70s. <laughs> no matter I want to be what. absolutely clear. Devin shoots a lot of the films he shoots that I way. Do. I do. I am a hypocrite. I have sold my soul. You know, I mean, I, you have to think about that. That does. Somebody brought that up with me on a, a separate conversation or webinar or something like that. It really pointed at that a lot of, you know, certain projects that were like very distinctly different genre and theme like why do these look the same i'm like well you have to look at actually there's a studio driven thing going on sometimes it's um it's coming from the studio like they like certain looks or certain people that go from project to project they're not necessarily the same types of genre you know uh certain post houses that have a certain look that are kind of baked into the way that they do their process or pipeline and that is very much mm. a part of what drives those looks forward, right? Um, you know, there's, you know, obviously we, we have the, the joke about the teal and orange, the, you know, thing uh, from years ago that everybody was doing the teal and orange thing and like applause to to that initial <laughs> uh, process that like, and, and colorist and filmmaker that decided that was like, that was that look and that became 
such a common point of of like you know vision for a lot of films and commercials after that um and then it changed and it altered and, and i think we we've we're definitely in like you said in a phase where people are looking for and i think it, it you know these these happen because of a collective psyche too like people are <laughs> looking for um the past they're looking for mm-hmm. some stability they're looking for you know certain things to to happen in terms of you know their entertainment or their escapism like things you know we there's history of of that happening in music and i think it very much happens in in film as well um or any kind of entertainment it's just like the 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 kind of collective global uh you know consciousness sort of like kind of keeps adjusting the media and the look and the feel and the sound of things right like what we need and what we want to see or what we want to experience in our you know (laughs) escapist uh world but um I don't know. I mean, I think that <laughs> I think there's definitely there's definitely a lot of that, but there's definitely a lot of people who are, you know, trying to make things that are quite quite distinct and different too. Mm. And you do you you know, I think that's what comes from these these processes that, you know, we often talk about what's your process, how do you start, what do you do? And it's like when you are referencing other films a lot, then you sort of kind of create the echo chamber of those, right? And that could be good or bad. It just depends on what you want to do. Um, and then you take the, you know, the, something will break out of that and then that will become the new thing. And then, you know, people will kind of emulate that and create that. And then it like, and it evolves over time. I find that, that fascinating. Like, why is that, you know, why are, why is that the way that we work like that? What drew that out originally? Why were those colors so interesting? And like you said, with the red, like there was an aspect to it was like, oh, this is really different. Like, let's just go for this, mm-hmm. you know? Um, or like the dogma movement. Yeah, for sure. Or something, yeah. You know, where everyone's shooting on like handy cams. <laughs> Oh, all the handheld stuff. I mean, believe me, I have my fair share of those those films where, you know, it's like everything is is moving, you know, and it's like, how do you put color into a film where it's like you're already the audience is already being kind of like thrown at like a ton of like data by it, like whether the movement is just like so much. I, I remember watching was it children of men in the movie theater and it actually got like not and it was like i remember having the same thing right i'm such a nerd where i'm like i feel like i'm i'm super ill but i i love that this movie <laughs> is doing this to me like i actually right. like really was taken by the idea that like you could create that experience for somebody and that, that was what you know it, it did to me i was just like you know not just we uh, just put out an episode about you know, the the born movies that came out in the mid 2000s oh, yeah. that were <laughs> shaky as hell and, and we love those and too we we, <laughs> we love, finished I it. it yeah i love them one of the last things devin said in that episode was uh i wouldn't trade that motion sickness for the world yeah. <laughs> amazing um so uh, this brings me to like my kind of a maybe the hardest question i have this whole interview I guess it's not, it's a conversation. Um, my, my, my most difficult uh, query of this conversation, haha, um, <laughs> which is, this is all pure speculation, but what do you think's next? I mean, not necessarily, people often ask that in a technological sense, and I, I to be honest, I don't really care what's next technologically. I care what's next. Do you see any, like, kind of trends emerging artistically in, in this kind of vein of, like, right now we're kind of almost like peak film emulation right now, I hope. Do you see anything kind of emerging in the next couple of years that you, that you find exciting? Oh, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I think, like, peak film emulation is definitely, like, uh, has been on the downside, at least in my experience. I feel like, you know, it's it's become a lot less of a conversation uh, creatively. So I would agree with that. You know, it's been interesting thinking about, like, through the pandemic and how things have really changed uh, our process, like, how we work. And, and especially in post-production, like, we're all 
uh, you know, separate all from home is an environment that we were already quite like um, in a bit of a vacuum or, or isolated in our own little rooms to a certain extent. And now it's like, I'm in a room, like my, my director's in another room, the DP's at home, somebody's in, in Budapest, like everybody is everywhere, um, but also by themselves. And I think that sort of creating the desire for a different style of content. So uh, for, to me, I see a lot of like just these different, like different types of types of content. I think animation is definitely going to kind of make a comeback more in terms of like adult content. And I don't mean in like a, a adult way. I just mean it like not just for children. Um, you know, just seeing like something like Raya or, um, or Soul become these like, bi- you know, these big kind of hits and then they were all, you know, created and completed in the middle of the pandemic. And yet they are, were able to sort of push, push forward because almost more, you know, not because of the pandemic, but they, you know, animations are definitely in a better situation because you can let everybody can literally be on their own machines and, and they can have meetings and stuff virtually. It's really interesting in terms of the process. Filmmaking is harder because you obviously got to get these people big sets together and all of this. And I, I don't think the pandemic is going to be in our life always, but just given this whole experience of everybody being kind of separated, I, I feel like creatively people really are like craving that sort of like togetherness and, you know, the things that bring them together. So I've seen a few projects come up that are like different kinds of films. So, you know, like storytelling where it's more experimental thing, yeah, because of the, it's kind of cracked it open a little bit in terms of like what people are willing to watch. I can't remember what that series was. That was a Netflix. Just to do a, just a quickly wild guess. Is it how to? No, it's not. But that one has definitely come up for me too. I haven't seen that yet. But yeah, that's basically experimental documentary that has somehow become popular cinema. It's amazing. I mean, I also just think like these real stories, right? Like people are wanting a lot more kind of like the raw, rawness, like real, you know, not necessarily seeing these like perfectly finessed, polished, like perfection. I think that's like becoming out of fashion right now. I think people are much more interested in like these documentary stories, like real life stories, things that are happening. I think documentary is definitely already on its up, but like there's been a lot of documentary content in the last few years in terms of like higher budgets being made, bigger kind of characters and crazier stories and things like that um, that are coming out. And it's just like, you know, that's interesting. I think people are like just be having video home and you're like your four walls and if it's just you or your family or whatever, it's like, realizing others everybody has those things i think that that's what people are like wanting to see and experience so seeing like rougher edged creatively maybe um i don't know if it's going to be that like the whole handheld thing necessarily but i do think like seeing uh things that are shot on all kinds of different cameras and and kind of capture devices is definitely going to be a thing at least in the next few years i mean at these big events in time cause a lot of change in terms of what people want and need are there any like common things that you run into misconceptions about your craft or about what color is that if if given a platform to suddenly hand a leaflet to everyone on earth they go this is not true is there is there any specific thing that you would love to demystify <laughs> that's a funny question um what i do most people don't even know that this job exists so i'm to this day Still, 90% of the people who I talk to, like, I'm a colorist in film. So what does that mean? You know, it's kind of like you're doing the overall, like, look and feel for the whole movie. Like, Photoshop, but, like, for a whole movie. Like, oh, I didn't even know that was a job, you know. (laughs) So to me, to me, it's like, 
it is a job, I guess. Um, it's something that's very much present. You know, it's become obviously a much more well known. I think that, you know, I'm thinking about think people coming up into the industry, looking at colorists. I get a lot of people coming out of, of university or college looking at like, oh, I want to be a colorist. And I'd say to demystify it as this glamorous sort of like, hotshot um, rock star sort of like role that it appears to be, I think, from the outside. It's definitely it doesn't appear not to be that. that. Oh, wow. What? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I, I think it must because I don't know why people would want to do this job. No, I just think it's, I just think, I find it just to be like, to demystify the fact that like, yeah, that it's like got a lot of attention. It's very much behind the scenes and it's very, I mean, unless you kind of like rise to this place of like talking about it a lot or, or an education, I think that, you know, when you develop relationships with cinematographers and directors, yes, you get to kind of be in the limelight and work with, with those people. And there are a select few colorists who really like, you know, take on this famous or like rock star role of the colorist. But <laughs> I think that I think that really to be, you know, realize that it's a very much like an artist driven role. Some people would might consider it be very technical or it's very like, oh, it's a very computer job. It's a job but that's computers based on computers. <laughs> but you spend a lot of time in the computer. Like this is, you know, people that you talk to, they try to like assess what you what you do. And yes, it's very digital. It's very it can have technical aspects, but I think to to realize that it's very much like like a, a cinematographer or you know it's much it leans much more on the creative side and it's really we know that we can we can enhance and like clarify narrative and storytelling with color and i think that that requires like a creative process and and thought to go with that so i guess to me that would be it is just to say that it, it's not it's not the, the the all it's cracked up to be that you can just walk in and get your espresso made for you i mean like that sometimes happens but i uh, know um but like a lot of people coming up coming into the industry are like oh i'm really good with like resolve i've learned how to use resolve so i can be a colorist it's like well how good are you with like six people in the room and they're all saying three to you know they're saying like six different things and <laughs> helping to guide everybody on which way to go how good are you with people like to even just find some that's super introverted and that doesn't really know like doesn't communicate as well as like a very boisterous producer that maybe doesn't have the you know the creative say in what's going to happen and like how do you navigate that dynamic you know to me that's all i have to say about that <laughs> do you have a kind of project like a, a certain way you'd love to color something or a kind of uh film that you or project you would love to color like something where you're like i would love to get a, sh a crack at doing it like this someday or doing a project like that someday. <laughs> I love, you know, those big genre films, like film or projects in general, things that have like, you know, the satire or the sci-fi, the things that have like, you know, kind of like a deeper meaning that aren't necessarily, not to say they don't love drama and comedy and all those things too. Oh, they suck. But... We can be honest with each other here, Andrea. No. <laughs> I love all of the, I mean, I love like all of those movies, but there's, there's always that the thing about like when you, you grew up thinking about what you were going to do. I, somebody asked me this the other day of like, Oh, what was your childhood like job, you know, that you wanted to be when you were a kid. And I like what my, I like honest to God wanted to, I was obsessed with Disney movies. I loved animation. I wanted to be an ant, like an animator. That was like what I wanted to do. I wanted to draw like cell animation as a kid. I was obsessed with that. And so I used to like make flip books and stuff like that. So I was really into, and I realized that the timeline for me was like movement, but you look at back at like these films that really inspired you to just be who you are, like creatively. And to me, like, 
those big sci-fis like the aliens and like star wars and all of those like to me the idea of like getting like a like if aliens was a series like if they took aliens and reinvigorated it like made an hbo series with it like i think that would be like i think i would really enjoy that i guess you know there's something about like that full circle moment that you kind of always want to have i think and, and that's when you see these these big you know series or films come out where they're like kind of going back to something like I don't know. That would be really exciting to me to see how like those things would be like reimagined or re, you know, rewritten and and presented to the world. I'd love to have a part in that. So, thank you, thank you for making the time uh, for our weird little Canadian podcast, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> weird little Canadians or weird Canadians or I don't know. Yeah, all yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, all Canadians are weird. We can agree on that, right? So that's cool. No, yeah, I mean, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we finally made it happen. Always, always a blast. All right, folks. Our associate producer is Paige Smith. If you enjoyed this episode, then rate and review us on whatever podcast service you may use. You can help keep our podcast going at patreon.com slash filmformally. And you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at FilmFormally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs>